0: The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Amen. Uh, If you are an adult here who has ever interacted with a three, four, or five-year-old for longer than maybe an hour, you have already earned an honorary Ph.D. in answering why questions. So Church, I speak to you, one expert to another, about this strange phenomenon in children. In 2009, researchers at the University of Michigan, Go Blue, sorry about the basketball, conducted a study on children entitled this, Preschoolers Search for Explanatory Information Within Adult-Child Conversation. I read the journal article of their findings this week and I was fascinated. The study focused on the reality that we already know that children ask a lot of causal questions. Why and how, especially when they're talking to adults. The researchers were specifically interested in what kind of answers can an adult provide that will satisfy children's curiosity. The study wasn't focused on the reasons why kids ask these sorts of questions, but rather, what do the kids do with the way adults answer them? The researchers examined 582 transcripts of free-form conversation between an adult and a diverse set of children between the ages of 2 and 5. From these conversations, the researchers highlighted 3,000 questions, causal questions the children asked that began with why or how, and some of those questions were, and here they are, and remember, these are two to five-year-olds, questions such as why you put yogurt in there? Why you making tacos? How can snakes hear if they don't have ears? Why my tummy so big, mommy? (laughs) And maybe my favorite, why not my cracker talk? (laughs) The researchers noted the question. They noted how the adult answered the question. And then most importantly, how did the child respond? Did the child show through nonverbal communication that they accepted the answer? Or did they repeat the question, rephrase the question, Deepen the question, did the child seem unsatisfied or satisfied with the answer given? And the conclusion here was pretty basic. Children want to know how and why things work. They explore their world by asking these questions. And when a child asks you why or how, they're really trying to get an answer to the question. They're not just trying to take up conversational space. And what the researchers found was that children, even as young as two, are amazingly able to discern a non-explanation from a real one. In fact, nearly 25% of the questions asked when an adult answered with a trite non-explanation to a child, such as saying, I don't know, to the question, why am I sick? The child does exactly what you're thinking the child does. They repeated the question until they received... A more satisfactory answer but the main takeaway for me from this study was this yearning for explanation is central to human development craving answers to our how and why questions is the way we stretch out our understanding of our world of ourselves and even as it turns out of God In our gospel text today, we catch up to Jesus somewhere in the vicinity of Jerusalem. Jesus is on the move. He's walking to an unnamed location, or at least that's what the first verse of today's gospel reading seems to suggest. We know that in the previous chapter, Jesus has really gotten under the skin of a few religious leaders, and he has even incited some of them to violence over what, he is saying he has fled the temple courts where he'd been hanging out and is now walking around the city of Jerusalem. He's got his ragtag group of student followers meandering with him. And as they walk, the text says right in verse 1, he, Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. Now notice who it is that is doing the seeing here. It is Jesus. Jesus. Jesus notices this man, which I find to be a remarkable way of beginning this entire dramatic passage. As we'll find out later in the story, this blind man is not a well-to-do landowner with ample goods and resources who just happens to be blind. No, this man had been cast out from his family, from his synagogue, from his community to beg On the street, he is an impoverished outcast consigned to ask passersby for contributions of food or money. The text says he was blind from birth, which is really, really fascinating because knowing this fact also means that this poor blind man has a local reputation. You don't meet someone who is blind and know automatically they're blind from birth. I mean, maybe they had a tragic accident or had a disease that robbed them of their sight. I mean, as we'll see, the only way to really verify that this man was born blind would be to ask his parents, was he born blind? But the text simply says Jesus saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples ask him about why this is the case, which means they too knew he was born blind. I mean, how did they know this. It must be the word on the street. This isn't just someone who suffered a horrible accident. This is somebody who was born without the ability to see at all, ever. I mean, before we get to the question the disciples ask, just ponder for a moment. What must it be like to be this man born blind, a man who could still, certainly still hear, and who could hear the way he's mocked by some, but who could also And more importantly here, the way he would be completely ignored by most people. The problem with having enough resources in our life is that it slowly moves us to move people who don't have the same out to the margins of our vision. Many of us drive daily past the same people who are experiencing homelessness, who stand daily at the same I-75 exit ramp with the same cardboard sign that says anything helps, and we, from the creaturely comforts of our vehicles, well, we eventually find that after a period of time, we stop noticing them there at all. They've become part of the background scenery of a post-industrial city. Our eyes stop seeing these children of God out of the guilt, perhaps, that we can't fix their problems. We're not actively mean to them. We don't mock them or yell at them, but our silence is deafening. We stop seeing. Many people would have ignored this man sitting on the side of the street, and those people would have taken comfort knowing that this man can't even see them to know that he's being ignored. He is By all accounts, a lesser than in their eyes. Someone who is not worth being noticed at all. So church, when John opens his reading in this chapter by saying, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. That tells me a lot about our Savior who sees what others choose to ignore. And who notices what others are willing to set aside as worthless. Jesus sees him. Now, I don't know if Jesus had plans to talk to this man, or to heal him, or to help meet his needs, or even to call him as a disciple. All we know is that Jesus sees him, and before he can do anything else, his eager beaver student followers have a question. And it's a doozy. Teacher, they ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The question is remarkable for a number of reasons, some of which you might have guessed. First, it's remarkable because it is really cold and detached. Like medical students in residency doing daily clinical rounds with an attending physician who have to stand at the the bedside of a patient and speak about that patient's condition and potential treatment options all while ignoring the patient altogether. The question of the disciples about this man doesn't engage the man at all. It feels dispassionate. And empty, really, of any sense of empathy. Remember, the man is blind. He can certainly hear them talking about his condition, his livelihood, his parents, his past. Jesus saw the man. Jesus noticed the man. But the disciples saw only a theological quandary to be pondered out loud. Okay, secondly, the question is remarkable because the question is not exactly, Teacher, why is this man born blind? Or, Teacher, why do people have to suffer? Or, Teacher, why do bad things happen? Those are proper questions to the human mind, but this question is not those questions. I mean, notice what they ask. Teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples really do want to know why he was born blind. They want an explanation That makes sense, but they begin their question with a remarkable belief statement. Somebody sinned. Who was it, Jesus? The question the disciples want to know is about principle, causality. I mean, like, for whose sinful past was this man born blind? They're already convinced that somebody in his family tree messed up. They're confident human sin is the cause of this man's plight, and they're just trying to see who it is they can blame. Okay, third... I'm not done. Third, this question is remarkable because of what it insinuates. We already know the man was born blind, blind from birth, as the gospel says, and so when the disciples ask who sinned, who missed the mark, who failed to, uh, to abide by God's laws, this man or his parents, with the result he was born blind, you've got to stop for a minute and scratch your head. Like, as a Torah reader, you might possibly be able to reason your way to the idea of transmitted consequences for human sin. I mean, you might read passages like Exodus 34-7, hearing about how God does not clear the guilty, but visits the iniquity of the parents upon the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. But you've got to do a lot of eye-squinting and manipulation of that to make that fit. But the disciples don't stop there, right? They also ask, is it possible for this man— To be the sinner. And because of his sins, he was born blind. I mean, okay, just stop. Say that's true for a minute. Just for discussion. Say this man's sin is in fact the reason he's born blind. Now ask yourself, when exactly would this man have had to commit those sins in order for him to be born blind? I mean, are his disciples really asking if this man sinned somewhere between conception and birth? Is prenatal sinfulness an actual thing? The nature of this question, they ask, brings up some very strange and confusing ideas about what exactly sin is, who can do it, and what consequences there are for it being done. And for our purposes here today, in this preaching series we're calling Tested, the question and the assumptions behind it form the basis of yet another test for Jesus. It's the test of bad theology. Presented with a person who is mired in poverty and who bears an extreme disability, Jesus is asked about the why of it all and and is given an opportunity to connect human suffering to human sinfulness in a formulaic, predictable, cause-and-effect sort of way. Who sinned, this man or his parents? The question gives Jesus an opportunity to condemn somebody else for going astray from God's laws. It gives him an opportunity to make sense of human suffering and to give a neat and tidy rationale for pain and tragedy. But Jesus does not take the bait. He does not try out a clever, simple answer to solve the riddle of human suffering, nor does our Lord accept the premise of his disciples' question at all. The question for Jesus is not about determining a cause for blindness from birth, but rather about determining how will God's work be revealed even in somebody who was born blind. Look at Jesus' response in verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, you dummies. That's my ad. (laughs) He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Jesus says, look, this man was born blind, and you don't get to know why. The world is a busted-up place with harsh realities sometimes. Paradise has been walled off to us. We're all living east of Eden, and we're all acquainted with suffering of some degree. The question to ask, the problem to solve, is not why, but so what. Look... This man, blind from birth, ridiculed by passersby, thrown out of worship services, who has to beg for his daily bread. This man has been written off by the public as an emblem of sinfulness. He's been diminished into the wallpaper of the city streets. He sits daily, listening for somebody to come closer, to draw nearer, to show him mercy. Jesus sees him. Jesus comes near. And Jesus, importantly, refuses to accept the premise of the disciples' question that we can trace this man's present condition to a specific sin somewhere in his family tree. Instead, Jesus says that this man, this blind man, this man who everyone else is content to disregard, this beloved child of God created in the image of El Shaddai would actually become, right now, the epicenter for God's works being done. Jesus said that God's works might be revealed in him. And what are those works? Works of a new creation. Works of restoration. Works of shalom, even shalom within our own bodies Works of making things right and setting captives free, even captives to darkness and blindness. The works of God in this world are works of healing and wholeness and reconciliation and peace. They are the works of making things right and just, of raising the lowly and bringing down the haughty. And here, in a stunning display of new creation work, Jesus performs a remarkable healing miracle. In graphic description, the text says he spits on the ground and makes mud and spreads it on the man's eyes. And I have to ask, how many times do you have to spit on the ground to make enough mud to smear on both eyes of a human adult? More than just once, I think. And to a passerby walking by at that moment, watching a rabbi spit repeatedly into the dirt would have been a strange sight indeed. But Jesus does, and he tells the man to go and wash at the pool of Siloam, a local pool fed by an underground spring, and the man goes, still blind. He goes slowly, probably. He goes with assistance from somebody else, and he makes it to Siloam, and he washes, as Jesus said, and he comes back to his old spot, and miraculously, unexpectedly, deliriously even, he's able to see with his own eyes. But in the time it took him to get to the pool... And come back, Jesus has moved on. And the man is very confused because he doesn't even know what his Savior looks like, only that this man named Jesus healed him. But he can see, and it's remarkable, and it draws a crowd, and many are amazed. Others are doubtful. His parents are cautious and aloof. The senior pastors and theologians are skeptical and critical and harsh and dismissive. And by the end of today's passage, This man, this emblem of God's new creation, this walking signpost of God's promises in Isaiah 35 to give sight to the blind, this man is cast out again from church. Driven out by the religious puritanism of those who refuse to accept the work of healing as God's work. And so this man ends up right where he began, an outcast, sitting on the street, still named sinner by the religious, still ignored by those walking the streets. The only difference is that now he can see. Verse 35 says, Jesus heard they had driven him out, and he found him. Jesus saw the man in the beginning. He saw what no one else wanted to see. And now in the end, it is Jesus who finds this man again. Jesus will not let you go, church. He has seen you. He has healed you. And he will find you no matter where you end up in the periphery of this world. No matter how intense your suffering is or how perilous your future seems. Jesus has seen you. He's healed you. He will find you wherever you might roam. And this passage to me, this passage is fascinating for many reasons. And one of them being the number of questions asked in it. 16 questions to be exact in 41 verses, which is something like one question every two and a half verses. Listen to some of these questions. Verse 2 who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Verse 8, is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Verse 10, how were your eyes opened? Verse 12, where is Jesus? Verse 16, well how can Jesus, a man who is a sinner, perform such signs? Verse 17, what do you say about Jesus? Verse 19, is this your son who you say was born blind? Verse 19, how then does he now see? Verse 26, what did Jesus do to you? Verse 26, how did he open your eyes? Verse 27, Why do you want to hear it again? Verse 27, do you want to become his disciples? Verse 34, are you trying to teach us? Verse 36, who is he, sir? Verse 40, surely we are not blind, are we? The text is filled with questions, but of these 16 questions, only one is asked by Jesus. Verse 35, Jesus returns to the man, finds him on the street, and he asks the only question he'll ask in the whole story. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus asks the man a personal question a question of assurance and faith and trust. It's a theological question that has a personal stake. It's another way of asking, do you believe that God has sent somebody to kickstart his kingdom here on earth? Like, Do you believe there's more to this world than just the present suffering and shame? Can you believe that God is going to do something new in the world and will you believe that he has already sent somebody to start that work? And the man replies, who is this somebody, sir. Tell me about him so that I will know how to believe in him. And Jesus says, you've seen him, it's me. And the man confesses his faith and trust, Lord, I believe, and he worships Jesus on the spot. The man who everyone else was content to dismiss as sinful or the product of sinfulness, the one who others relegated to the margins, to the backdrop, to the periphery, the one who the Bible readers had named Cursed by God, the one who his parents were reluctant to stand behind, the one whom his neighbors doubted was ever actually blind, this man was seen by Jesus, healed by Jesus, found by Jesus, and was given the blessed gift of deeper knowledge and insight and revelation. And the religious well-to-do in the story are, in the final estimation, flummoxed. Their rigidity and rigor and scrupulous zeal had infected their spiritual vision with myopia of the worst kind. They could no longer glimpse. The activity of God when it arrived in the lives of those outside their systems and rules and traditions. They ruled this man out as one who could not and should not be healed. And they ruled Jesus out because he did not fit their pre-existing beliefs and structures. These folks entered the story spiritually blind. They ended the story spiritually blind. But for those who choose to believe that in Christ... God's works of healing and wholeness are being done. Their eyes are opened wide. For those, like the blind man who chose to believe that in Jesus God had kick-started his campaign to guide this world through its labor pains and agony into the joy of new life, their hopes are rekindled. For those who can see and find those on the margins as Jesus did, for those who choose to draw close to them and extend aid to offer comfort, they will find not just The nameless, they will find the epicenter of God's new creation work made manifest in places and in people that do not always fit our preconceived notions. Jesus was tested by his disciples to make of this man a theological rationalization for the presence of blindness in our world. Instead, Jesus stepped into this man's life and made him into a beacon of glory, evidence that God's arrival comes often where we least expect. Where will we find God's new creation? Jesus invites us to have our vision restored so that we might see it being done in the hearts and lives of those whom others, even religious folks, have pushed into the background. There, Jesus says, if your eyes are open, you will see the glory of God revealed. The question to us today, will we be satisfied with that answer? Or will we wield our religion in such a way that we will continue to criticize, oppose, or ridicule those whom God is actively rescuing. May we be a church filled with people, with open eyes, with a Christ-like vision, with hearts not obsessed with being right or proving our case, but with the joyful wonder that comes from following our risen Savior into this world. Church, I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.